1: I'm Steve Kerwood. As Earth Day reaches its 38th birthday, green is becoming the new red, white, and blue, as love of country is increasingly being seen as love of the land.
2: The more we connect people back to the magic of the places we live in, the more they will respect them and take the tough actions that we all need to take to be uh, living in better harmony.
1: Cities move to become more livable. Also, this Earth Day, the environment is showing up in more and more business plans to the applause of some activists.
3: For some problems like global warming... It's really not the question of saying, don't do this, don't do that. We, we have to get corporations, engineers, entrepreneurs to be at the center of problem-solving if we're going to get the innovation that we
1: need. But others say corporations are a big part of the problem. That and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around.
4: Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm.
1: From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. This year, Earth Day is 38 years old, and we know what that means. It's nearly middle-aged. Time to settle down. Gone are the bullhorns and barricades of Earth Day 1970, when millions paraded to protest the ecological destruction of our planet. Instead, these days, it seems the call for environmental action is being taken more to the boardrooms than to the streets. Some see this shift as a softening in the resolve of one-time protesters who've since mellowed into parents and grandparents. But others see the trend as the maturation of a movement that must reconcile with the establishment to bring about meaningful change. We'll hear from both perspectives today, and we start with Fred Krupp, longtime president of the Environmental Defense Fund and co-author of the new book, Earth, the Sequel. Hello, Fred. Hi, Steve. How are you? I'm good. And Tell me, uh, your book title scared me a bit, Earth the Sequel. Does this mean we're going to need another planet?
3: No, it means that uh, we all know the current story, melting glaciers, rising sea levels, strengthening hurricanes, dying coral reefs. It's sort of like a slow-motion sci-fi horror movie unfolding before our eyes, and the stakes are very real and very grave. The sequel is all about how we get out of this fix. It's a hopeful story about inventors and engineers figuring out what we need to do to generate clean energy and, and have a future thriving planet.
1: Now, in your book, you describe this energy revolution that will solve global warming and, and go down as one of the greatest transformations in history. But these revolutionaries that, you're, that you talk about, they aren't environmentalists. They're, they're entrepreneurs, I would say. They are indeed. You know, it's it's an irony that the profit
3: motive got us into this fix because the market system doesn't account for the cost of global warming pollution that we throw into the air. Once we pick up that profit motive and turn it upside down and align it with what we need, we actually are able to harness entrepreneurial energy, thousands of inventors and businessmen who suddenly are required to inculcate in every decision the cost of throwing global warming pollution into the air and are rewarded only when they uh, realize the benefit of taking global warming pollution out of the
1: smokestacks or even if they can do it right out of the air. Now, it's it's true. Every week we seem to hear about some brilliant new technology that's going to help address the problem of global warming, but we've yet to see much change. Emissions keep rising. What's it going to take for all these great ideas to become reality? Well, the key thing,
3: Steve, is we've never solved an air pollution problem anywhere in the world without putting a legal limit or a cap on the amount of pollutants that could go into the air. And so these technologies, whether they're solar energy or wind power or wave power or geothermal, they are enormously cheaper for the atmosphere because they involve no pollution, but they now are being asked to compete while we give this huge subsidy to burning fossil fuels. So what I consider really the starting gun to start this great and important race is government in the United States clamping down, putting a legal limit that declines over time on uh, global warming pollution being dumped into the sky.
1: So in the meantime, we're waiting on our government to do something here. What should we do while we wait for these uh, changes to take place? I mean, the United States is good for what, a quarter of the world's uh, carbon uh, dioxide emissions, and we are what, 5 percent of the world population?
3: Yes. China and the United States unfortunately lead the world in pollution, with Brazil and Indonesia through the burning of their rainforests number three and four. First of all, we shouldn't just wait. We need to participate as citizens. Once we come to understand that global warming is not all doom and gloom, that it is very solvable, I think that leads us to wake up and engage in the political process.
1: You're trained as an attorney. Environmental Defense Fund is an organization that's known as, hey, if you pollute, you know, we're going to put a lawsuit down the chute. Absolutely. Our initial,
3: if informal, motto was sue the bastards. But we have found that if we can get the business community to work for our goals, That's even more
1: effective. At the first Earth Day, corporations were really in the center of the target, seen really as uh, engines of, of greed and of pollution. Obviously, your take on how to solve environmental problems differs vastly from that approach. To what extent do you think those protests were a mistake?
3: I don't look back with regret. I think it was important that we check the worst abuses. It was important that we ban lead. It's important that we get mercury out of the system. There's some abuses that just need to be banned and outlawed. But for some problems like global warming, where pollution is so widespread from so many activities, it's really not the question of saying, don't do this, don't do that. It's the answer that has to be, constructing the future. We, we have to get corporations, engineers, entrepreneurs to be at the center of problem solving if we're going to get the innovation that we need.
1: In your view, what can't
3: the market do for global warming? The market can't do what only we as citizens can do, and that is say to our elected officials enough We need a legal limit or a cap that declines as fast as the scientists tell us it must decline. The market can't and will never do that. That's something only you and I as citizens can do. And it's time to rise up and demand that every senator and every congressman be for a strong
1: climate change bill. Fred Krupp is president of the Environmental Defense Fund and recently wrote Earth, the sequel, together with Miriam Horn. Thank you so much, Fred. Thank you, Steve. David Corton is far more skeptical about the willingness of business to address the profound challenges of environmental change. Mr. Corton is an author and social researcher whose books include When Corporations Rule the World, as well as his latest volume, Great Turning, From Empire to Earth Community. He says solving the world's environmental problems will require much more than the current trend of corporations painting themselves a glossy shade of green.
5: Well, I think it certainly reflects a change in the public consciousness, an awareness on the part of corporations that they had better appear green or they're going to lose a lot of consumer loyalty. The unfortunate reality, however, is that the institution itself is legally structured in a way that it is very difficult for it to make any choices that do not increase its profits.
1: In recent years, more and more environmentalists have been advocating market solutions to our environmental problems.
5: What are your views on these types of arrangements? Well, basically, you know, if you, if you can give the big corporations enough subsidies so it's worth their while to uh, move, move ahead with environmental technologies— uh they will respond. But that is is going to be normally at an enormous cost to, to taxpayers. And the thing that's often not, not mentioned is if you're increasing the profits of corporations, you're basically serving the interests of the wealthiest investors over the uh, over the working people who actually produce goods and services. In these recent years, we've seen a green
1: version of virtually every product coming out on the market, whether it's a a car that gets better mileage or a cleaner that's less toxic or a home uh, that has a a, a lower carbon footprint. Um, To what extent can we consume our way
5: to conservation? If we substitute a green product for a... uh uh, a toxic or energy inefficient pro- product—that is—that's uh, uh, an advantage. But all of this misses the point of of the extraordinary seriousness of our of our global scale problem, and the and the larger fact that we are consuming Earth's resources at a much more rapid rate than what can be regenerated. One of the things we have to do is get beyond this myth that you know, as the economy grows, we bring the bottom up. And so we don't need to worry about the people on the top. We will all increase our consumption. And that's a, that's a major blind spot in, in economics, the idea that on a finite planet you can uh, have infinite growth. So to what extent are you optimistic about the future then? Well, I sometimes, frankly, Steve, get, get very scared because the rate at which our environmental systems are collapsing is terrifying. Ironically, one of our best hopes may be the fact that we are moving rapidly into a serious uh, collapse of the financial system. This is not a normal business cycle because we are also running up against very real limits. We've got more and more people uh, competing for this diminished resource base and everything from oil to fresh water and this is not gonna be a normal recovery. Now, as harsh and as difficult as a financial collapse will be, it could in some ways be considered a blessing because it forces us to, to step back and ask some of these deeper questions about what we want and, and to consider reforms that, that previously were off the table, very much like what happened with the, with the Great Depression of the 1930s. Where do you get the political will To make such deep
1: structural changes in society.
5: Redistributing
1: wealth has been a holy grail of of social progressives for
5: a long time, and it seems that we're, if anything, going in the opposite direction. We're definitely moving in the opposite direction. Now, you know, I think this environmental crisis creates an extraordinary moment of, of opportunity. It's often presented that the changes we need to make will involve serious sacrifice, But one of the things I learned in all my experience living around the world and in working with the global citizen movements is that for all the diversity of the world's cultures and peoples, when you get right down to it, most of the world's people want a world in which our children are healthy and happy, in which we have strong families, in which we have strong communities, caring communities, and a healthy natural environment. Once we begin moving beyond uh, meeting basic human needs, real happiness depends on the strength of our our communities and families. So it's actually, we face a, a combination of the imperative to change, as a price of our very survival as a species, combined with the opportunity to create the world that most of us actually dream about, but we're told is beyond our reach. We're so locked into stories that are very partial or even false, uh, including the idea that, uh, that life is fundamentally competitive and that uh, progress comes through competition. If one steps back and takes a deeper look at living systems, as, uh, as some of the people at the forefront of the new biology are doing, you begin to recognize that at a deeper level, uh, life is a fundamentally cooperative project.
1: David Corton's latest book is called Great Turning from Empire to Earth Community. Thank you so much for taking this time.
5: It's been a great pleasure, Steve.
1: Coming up, how green was my city? Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood.
0: Yeah. That almighty amazing, Ill, contagious, kamikaze, south splash, like a shot from a gauge into your body sound class.
1: We try to get down to the roots of things here at Living on Earth, though usually not with the Roots hip-hop band. But this year the organizers of Earth Day are featuring bands like The Roots and Arrested Development, and artists like Will I Am and Ziggy Marley at special events to try to reach a more diverse American audience. Kathleen Rogers is the president of the Earth Day Network. Um, Ms. Rogers, how did you come to feel Earth Day needs more diversity?
0: I was sort of dumbstruck when we started doing surveys of the environmental membership, and I discovered that the average age was somewhere between 51 and 55, and we were almost exclusively white. And I found that disturbing. It was a study that we did ourselves, and we all took a deep breath and said... We need to change things. If we want to be powerful, then we need to bring many more people into this movement.
1: Why has being green also traditionally meant being white?
0: Well, I think because in large part, the membership of the environmental community has been white. And so if you're looking at the first Earth Day event, which was part anti-war, part environment, and you look at subsequent events, uh, people tend to think about the environment Uh, after they've taken care of their basic needs. And so the upper middle class population of this country, again, largely uh, white for many, many years, uh, were those tried and true members that also became activists. We didn't concentrate on reaching out to other demographics in this country the way we should have. And now I think uh, there's a huge effort to change that. And Earth Day this year is not really the kickoff of that effort because it has been going on for some years. But it it will, I think, turn out to be a, uh, I hope, watershed of event in terms of how we define ourselves and describe ourselves to the community so the people that participate are African-American, are Latino, are seniors, are the very young.
1: What does the environmentalist of the future look like to you?
0: Well, Earth Day Network is in 180 countries, and uh, so we don't have that issue anywhere in the world, except in the United States, where the environmental community has largely been relegated to upper middle class white people. And so the environmentalist of the future reflects the demographic of our country. And that is something we have to work hard to change. And this Earth Day, I hope, will be a giant step in that direction.
1: Kathleen Rogers is the president of the Earth Day Network. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you very much. To mark
1: Earth Day, we are presenting and updating some of our favorite stories from years past. And with the theme of sustainable cities common this year in many locales, we thought we'd go back to 1994 and visit a city in southern Brazil called Curitiba. Curitiba is often cited as an example of how to make cities more livable. Its transformation didn't take a lot of money or even a lot of time. But it did take the vision of a man who was an architect and three-time mayor of Curitiba, Jaime Lerner. When our story was produced back in 1994, the city had a million and a half residents and had made great strides in dealing with garbage, pollution, and congestion. Later in today's program, we'll catch up with Jaime Lerner to hear how his Curitiba is faring today. But first, here's our story by reporter Cecilia Weissman.
6: For Paul Peter Constantinides, an architect and city planner, coming to Curitiba is like a pilgrimage.
3: Yeah, Monica City. It is the only city in my region that has an urban design that is correct. It prioritizes the quality of life, which is the most important thing.
6: Isso é o que é o mais importante, a qualidade de vida. It's the morning of the first day of a workshop for city officials at the Jaime Lerner Institute, Curitiba's urban planning think tank, and Constantinides and a dozen other mayors, vice-mayors and city officials from Brazil and Mexico are touring the city. Constantinides works in Jacari, a small city about 200 miles from here. He says Jacari is growing fast, it's polluted and the city's roads are a mess. Here in Curitiba, Constantinides stares out the window, marveling at the sights. Every few blocks, there's a park. The city's downtown is laced with pedestrian promenades. No trash clogs the gutters, no stains from smog on the 17th century architecture. And everywhere, traffic flows smoothly.
3: When you do urban planning, sometimes you favor the car or public transportation.
4: But here, everything is balanced. Everybody wins. The pedestrian, the drive of the car, and the use of the bus. And also, the landscape
6: is beautiful. The first stop is Curitiba's University of the Environment. Set up by the city government, the university provides free classes to citizens on everything from botany to recycling. A walkway made of rough boards winds across a marsh and through dense forest. It leads to a clearing surrounded by walls of sheer stone. Black-necked swans glide across a pond, and classical music is piped in over a loudspeaker. Until a few years ago, this was an abandoned quarry. When Kurichiba's three-time mayor, Jaime Lerner, saw the space, he had a flash of inspiration, sketched out a rough design for a small building made of recycled materials, and a couple of months later, the university was completed. It's low-tech and low-cost ideas like this that the city officials have come here to see.
1: This is very beautiful.
6: Whoever had the idea of doing this is brilliant. Manuel Tome is a top official in a city that's the capital of stainless steel production in Brazil. He says that smelters have polluted his city and left large tracts of vacant land. He came to Curitiba, desperate for solutions. I'm going to do
2: anything, find anything, an inspiration,
1: a quarry, a pile of rocks, whatever, to see if I could do something similar to this. I came to see what works and see which ideas I can steal.
6: At the next stop, the officials file into an auditorium, and the man they're all eager to meet strides to the podium of the institute which bears his
7: name. I
6: have the honor of receiving you here, Jaime Lerner tells them, at a time when cities can play a decisive role in the future of our country.
7: Exercer um papel muito importante na mudança do nosso país.
6: The son of Polish-Jewish immigrants, Lerner is an architect and urban planner. For most of the last 25 years, he's been mayor of Curitiba and masterminded the city's environmental urban design. Legally, he can't become mayor again, but recently he was elected governor of the state of which Curitiba is the capital, and Lerner consistently tops public opinion polls as the most popular politician in Brazil. Admirers come from all over the world to listen to Lerner's gospel. I'm sure that
7: every city in the world in less than one year can improve in environmental issues. It's very important, the start of the process of change in the city. Don't be afraid to start, even if it's not so correct. But if you don't start, there's there's nothing to correct.
6: Back when Lerner first became mayor of Curitiba in 1971, Brazil was going through its economic miracle, and most Brazilian mayors embraced the idea that bigger is better. Brasilia, the country's capital, had recently been built from the ground up in only five years. Sao Paulo's industries boomed, and in a decade, the city's population grew by more than half. But Lerner believed that unrestrained growth would eventually choke cities and make them unlivable. So he hired a team of young architects and urban engineers to develop cheap and environmentally sustainable solutions to basic urban problems, like public transportation and garbage. They built special schools for street children and converted old buses into roving classrooms to provide job training in typing and hairdressing for people living in shanty towns. Lerner says it's crucial to start small and look for
7: simple solutions. There's a lot of people Sellers of complexity, and sometimes it's not the question. It's not so complex. I think one of the secrets of Curitiba, we are not afraid of trying simple solutions. Like Curitiba's reforestation program launched 15 years
6: ago. The government provided saplings and the citizens rolled up their sleeves to plant them. A million and a half trees. Now Curitiba has more green space per citizen than any other major city in Brazil.
7: When the people, they feel respected, there is that that kind of a shared cause, the people with their city, and that means a lot.
6: After meeting with Lerner, the officials split up into small groups. A group of Mexican officials and bus drivers from the city of Leon, Guanajuato, decide to check out Curitiba's transportation system.
3: The system in our city is very, very bad. Rafael
6: Fernandez Perez works in the Office of Urban Affairs in the city of León.
5: Hardly
3: anybody gets on buses in León, no children. No pregnant women, no middle class, or older people. The only people that use them are people who don't have any choice. Other people travel by cars, so the traffic jams are terrible. Here in Curitiba, they have three times more cars than us, but people don't use them very much.
6: The officials pull up to Curitiba's transit authority where the manager of operations starts off his presentation with a videotape touting Curitiba's bus system. On the screen, sleek buses whiz through the city streets, carrying smiling passengers. The narrator explains that an efficient bus system can save money, reduce air and noise pollution, and improve the overall quality of life of the city. Curitiba, ligero en la direccion del futuro. When Jaime Lerner first became mayor, he was urged to build a subway, but decided instead that the more practical and cost-efficient solution was to improve the city's bus system with a network of express bus lanes linking downtown to outlying areas. Now, a third of the city's residents have switched from cars to riding buses, and exhaust fumes have been reduced by a third. The system pays for itself, The government contracts out to private companies on a competitive basis. The city collects fares and in turn pays the bus companies by the number of miles they drive each day. On the other side of town, Ricardo Ontiveros, a sanitation commissioner from Mexico, is inspecting Curitiba's recycling program.
2: Garbage is a huge problem. The only thing we do when we take it to a landfill, it's like the servant who sweeps the house and hides the garbage under the rug. There will come a day when garbage will suffocate us totally.
6: In Curitiba, a fleet of green trucks owned by a private company goes door to door to collect recyclable material. 70% of Curitiba's residents recycle the result of a massive education campaign in schools and middle-class neighborhoods. And perhaps more importantly, the city also came up with an innovative program in poor neighborhoods, which gives out food and bus coupons in exchange for bags of recyclable glass, plastic, aluminum, and tin cans.
7: This program
2: is ingenious because it solves several problems at once, the poor, have an incentive to recycle, and at the same time, they're encouraged to use public transportation.
6: And at this facility, the recyclable material is separated by homeless people and recovering alcoholics who work in exchange for a small salary and room and board. In his city, Ontiviro says about 250 people live next to the dump and survive by combing through the trash and salvaging whatever they find. He says many of these people get seriously ill.
2: It's degrading to work in it a It's humiliating, and it shouldn't be.
6: No debe ser. No debe ser. Ontivero says he'd like to give the people back home jobs in a plant like this. Uh-huh. At the end of the day, the officials head back to their hotel. Many of them are reeling with possibilities and trading ideas about the new programs they want to establish when they get home.
4: I'm excited, but frankly, I feel a little sadness too.
6: Luis Augusto Trojan, the Secretary of Urban Development in a small town of a neighboring state, is unsure. He says he wonders if Curitiba's success can really be repeated elsewhere. The main difference
4: between my city and this city is a person like Jaime Lerner, a political figure with credibility. Curitiba is already so changed. People have become used to these things. It's irreversible. In my city, people are used to ugliness. People there don't want trees. They cut down the trees in the parks. They do things that are insane, nuts. So we have to start from the beginning, but without that visionary person,
6: it's very difficult. A man sitting nearby has similar concerns. Alexandre Cidiero from the state of Rio de Janeiro, says that residents of Curitiba are very different than the people in his
4: city.
0: In my city, the culture is very
1: different and the climate is different. People go to the beach, they aren't disciplined. Here it's colder, people stay indoors and read books. They think more about things. I know it all depends on the education. If you start slowly educating people in grade school, who knows? Maybe in 10 years, my city could be better.
6: In fact, Curitiba is very different than most other cities in Brazil. Even before Jaime Lerner became mayor, Curitiba had a long history of civic responsibility and community participation. Curitiba's population, mostly of Polish and Italian ancestry, is more culturally homogenous than in other parts of Brazil. Curitiba has a strong middle class without the huge income disparities between rich and poor common throughout the country. And the city government has traditionally been free of corruption. Another key to Curitiba's success is the fact that Lerner and his team were in power for nearly a generation, providing consistent policies from one administration to the next. Jaime Lerner admits that all of those factors have helped Curitiba be successful, but he insists that officials anywhere can implement simple solutions that can quickly improve the quality of life for their city's residents. In turn, he says, city leaders will gain credibility and support for future projects.
7: Many mayors in big cities, they have always that kind of excuse. Uh, You know, we cannot change because, you know, it's a big problem. The scale of the problem is not an excuse for not trying to change. It has nothing to do with the possibility of change. Several
6: cities have already adopted some Curitiba-type solutions, like recycling and express buses. Lerner says these won't solve all their environmental problems, but it's an important beginning in a world where increasing numbers of people live in cities. I'm Cecilia Weissman reporting.
1: Coming up, 14 years after we first aired our documentary on Curitiba, we speak with Jaime Lerner, the man whose vision helped create the model sustainable city.
7: I think the merit of the credit of Curitiba is we had uh, the courage to make simple solutions.
1: The simple solutions that shape Curitiba and how other cities could follow its lead. That's just ahead. Stay tuned to Living on Earth.
4: Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International.
1: It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Curitiba, the Brazilian city we just heard about in Cecilia Weissman's documentary, would not be the environmental success it is without the leadership of Jaime Lerner. Jaime Lerner is an architect and urban planner. He was also the mayor of Curitiba for three terms and served twice as the governor of the Brazilian state of Paraná. His leadership was largely responsible for the transformation of the city. Today, Jaime Lerner is a professor of urban and regional planning at the Federal University of Paraná and is this year's keynote speaker at the EcoCity World Summit in San Francisco. He joined us in our studios and together we listened to our
7: 1994 story. First of all, I'm very happy to listen uh, this interview because on the essence, nothing changed. The
1: city's much bigger now, though. What, it went from, what, 1971, uh, a million people, million and a half people, and now it's, it's tripled in
7: size? The population tripled since 1971, but many issues, they are improving more and more. For instance, the um, average of uh, green areas is 52 square uh, meters of green area per inhabitant. Uh, The system of transport is getting better. We started, I remember, 25,000 passengers a day. Now we have 2,400,000 passengers. And the system works well.
1: You said you had 52 square meters of green space per resident? Yes. And what was that back when you started in Curitiba? In 71,
7: a half square meter per inhabitant. Where did you get all this green space? It's an incredible story. We started the wrong way. The wrong way? (laughs) We started wanting to build squares, you know, that kind of planning. Every uh, kilometer, every 500 meters, we should have a grid of uh, uh, of parks. And all of a sudden, we realized that it will take years and years, a lot of of resources, and until the, the trees will grow up, and all of a sudden, uh, we understood that it's more important saving the existing woods. So let's say if uh, family Cardozo had a place with a small wood, they took care for 20, 30 years, but it was very difficult for them to, taking care to maintenance. So we made an agreement. We told them, we're going to buy 75% of your land, and you keep 25. And we're going to transform this place in a public park. We'll pay homage to the family that took care of this place. On having a public park close to the remaining area, you will have a plus value. but the condition is we have to buy for, That's expensive uh, price. And we made 98% of agreements. So it changed the whole landscape.
1: Now, as I understand it, the city of Curitiba has the highest rate of separating garbage of virtually any city in the world. What, some 70% of residents at this yes. point separate their trash for recycling? How did the city achieve such a success rate?
7: I think the, the reason was we started with the children. We teach them in all the children, in all the schools, how to separate during six months. After the children, they teach their parents. And at that moment, it was easy to make a campaign that they knew how to do it. So I think... More and more, the children, they're going to play a very important role in the future. That's why I'm obsessed about the idea of trying to teach sustainability to the children. There's a quote of yours,
1: which I find quite interesting. It says, creativity starts when you cut a zero from a
7: budget. What do you mean by that? Sometimes when you cut two zeros. Okay. having too much money, you don't have creativity. So it's very easy when you have too much money it's very e- easy also to take the wrong decision. Okay? everything is possible. So I'm looking many cities in the world how much they are wasting with ideas that it doesn't work any longer. Many cities there trying to build very costly systems of public transport. But it will take 30, 40 years to build one line. And a very good bus system on surface can cost 100 times less expensive per kilometer and you can do it in two years to three years.
1: Now, you're not talking about the famed Second Avenue line in in Manhattan in New York that was supposed to start back in the 1960s and yes. has just begun digging now. Yes. And that line will cost, what, several billion dollars? Four billion dollars. And if Jimmy Lerner were in charge,
7: you would do... I could save some money for the city. Yeah, how exactly? The city of New York, they could transport two million passengers per day and very, very... with comfort on surface. In buses? buses, right now.
1: And your method is high-speed bus lanes? People pay for the bus before they get on the bus? Yes. And they come... How often do the buses come?
7: You have to propose a good frequency. It has to be a reliable system. So... The question is: Don't wait more than one minute. You'll have a wonderful system.
1: Not wait more than a minute for a yes, bus yes. in Manhattan. Yes, you can do it. In all these years, what was the one thing that
7: really amazed you—that just vastly exceeded your dreams? I remember planting trees. We started the campaign in seventy-two. At that time, we didn't have the technology to having big trees. So we have small trees. We had to plant very small trees. So that means you have to take care. We made a campaign. And so we're giving you mm, the shade. You have to provide the water for the trees. I thought we were going to lose the half of the trees. We lost only 5%. So what amazes me is how people, they react when they feel respected, when they understand something which is desirable. You have to trust in people, because they can do much better than you imagine. Always.
1: Jaime Lerner is the three-time mayor of the Brazilian sustainable city Curitiba and twice governor of the state of Paraná, Brazil. Thank you so much for coming by. Thank you. From a sustainable city in Brazil, we take you now to the city of Lakes, Minneapolis, Minnesota. Earlier this month, Minneapolis released its 2008 Green Print Report, updating progress that city has made towards its sustainability goals. R.T. Ryback is the mayor of Minneapolis, and he joins me now on the line to talk about the greening of his city. Mayor Ryback, welcome to Living on Earth. Uh, I'm very happy to be here. Now, Popular Science magazine recently rated Minneapolis the Eleventh greenest city in the country. I suppose you took. And we demand
2: a recount. You demand
1: a recount. Well, St. Paul was (laughs) twelve.
2: Well, that's a wonderful thing. I think Minneapolis is uh, is doing some wonderful things. So are a lot of other people around the country too.
1: Well, congratulations! But of course, what are you going to do to be number one?
2: Well, I think one of the most important things is really engaging our citizens to be involved in those both big and little things that will make the city sustainable. So uh, we've challenged everyone to be part of the what's called the Minnesota Energy Challenge. They look at their own lifestyle. The city does as well. And we collectively try to reduce uh, as much of our uh, CO2 as possible. And uh, so far, we've had about 3,100 citizens sign up to, uh,
1: to save 21 million uh, pounds. Tell me about uh, your specific grant program to help uh, Minneapolis deal with climate change. We put out micro microgrants,
2: uh, $1,000 to $10,000, and had a series of actions, some as small as uh, a community organizing group working with Somali women, teaching them to ride bicycles so they can commute that way, another neighborhood organization distributing clotheslines to replace dryers, a lot of community organizing uh, among, along the idea of what you can do in your own neighborhood.
1: What can a city like Minneapolis do in the face of gasoline headed to 4 and $5 a gallon or more? And, and, of course, it does generate carbon dioxide when it comes back out the tailpipe. In particular, what are you doing to get people out of their cars? Clearly, there are many things you can
2: do uh, to attack climate change. But if a third of our greenhouse gases come from cars and traffic, then the uh, the single largest issue is alternative transportation planning. That, uh, in our city, has meant uh, building light rail lines. We're now looking at streetcars within the city. We're developing bus rapid transit. And we're happy to say that uh, almost half of the 165,000 people who work downtown come there in some way other than a car. Minneapolis's climate is not perfect in the winter, yeah. but it is the second-best <laughs> second bike commuting city in the country. And that's what's so incredible about, uh, about the people here, is it's not an
1: impediment. The Mississippi River runs right through the middle of uh, parts of, of Minneapolis. It's not particularly clean there. What are you doing to improve water quality? One
2: of the things that happens when you get a new job like mayor is that they give you a bunch of dirty little secrets you didn't know about when you uh, first wanted the job. And in my second week in office, they came in and told me about what was called combined sewer overflow—that uh, when there were uh, extreme rains, that um, our our system would overflow and raw sewage would go into the Mississippi. Well, that was obviously not something that we could tolerate. So we launched a very aggressive program to prevent those overflows, and it it involved uh, working with building owners to have them disconnect from the sewer system. It uh, dealt with giving credits to homeowners for permeable surfaces so the water would seep in, rain gardens, uh, rooftop gardens. And I'm really proud to say that as of last summer, we had no incidents of that, which was very good. It's also important in a city that is filled with not only the Mississippi River, but uh, many, many lakes, that we continue our aggressive street sweeping and educate citizens that their lawn is a beach. Anything they put on there goes right into the lakes. And if you don't want to swim in it, don't put it on your your lawn. In the short term, though, how do you pay for all of this? Well, you have to make choices. And there is a, a green premium that people pay. And I think that's wrong. But I think we also have to take those aggressive steps, even if it means a little more in the short term. And I think we need to get ourselves back in harmony with the planet. That doesn't mean having your head in the sky, but it does mean really laying out to citizens what's at stake here. I talk a lot about the natural beauty of the extraordinary place we call Minnesota. And Minnesota sits um, in a pre-settlement where the big woods met the prairie. If we think about that and think about the poetry of a prairie in a big woods, think about a place where water flows in three directions, people begin to reconnect with the, uh, the land that they're part of. You do not destroy something you love. And I think we have so uh, taken our land for granted that the more we connect people back to the magic of the places we live in, the more they will respect them and take the tough actions that we all need to take to be
1: uh, living in better harmony. R.T. Rybeck is mayor of Minneapolis, Minnesota. Thank you so much, Mr. Mayor. Thank you. It's fun to talk about this. Today, 38 years after the massive demonstrations of the first Earth Day, things have never been as bad for the environment. World population has ballooned from less than 3 billion to over 6 billion, and it's still rising, along with greenhouse gas levels that are on course to ignite climate catastrophe. Species continue to disappear, and just recently we heard about some salmon of the Pacific Northwest apparently going the way of the buffalo, passenger pigeon, and dodo. If that's not enough bad news, government researchers are now telling us that a chemical widely used in plastic water and baby bottles called bisphenol A might be harmful to children's brains and reproductive organs. And as the environment gets poorer, so do people. Some folks made a lot of money in the tech and real estate booms, but as each bubble has popped, as a whole, we've slipped further behind. Today's credit crunch, the weak American dollar, and soaring gas prices show the tightening that's been going on. I only have to look at my own life to get a handle, Just before Earth Day 1970, I was earning my way through college as a junior fill-in radio engineer for CBS. That summer job paid $500 a week with overtime. Ten weeks' pay covered half of my college tuition, plus a summer apartment and upkeep for a car and a motorcycle. Full-time would have been $25,000 a year. These days, there's almost no way a college kid is going to pay for half of private college tuition by working a ten-week job. In fact, he's likely to move back home after graduation. So what happened? Well, today, my summer job pay, adjusted for inflation, comes to an annual salary of $180,000. That's more than the salary of a United States senator. So the middle class has been getting poorer, even as the rich are getting richer. And what does this have to do with the environment? When people are poor, there is no time for sustainability. There's no money to update or replace energy-hogging homes and cars when credit cards are maxed out. And there's no time to cook a meal of locally grown food when all the adults in a household have to work every day just to afford a fast food drive-thru. So it's clear that when our economy is down, so is our environment. And when our environment is down, so is our economy. Dirty air, dirty water, congestion, disease, and disability, not to mention the stronger storms and floods and droughts of climate disruption, are all costing billions, if not trillions, to address. The lesson of ecology is that everything is connected. So it's up to us to connect those dots, to act as a community that can share and work together to find simple solutions rather than maximize individual advantage. This Earth Day should remind us all that we have the responsibility to turn around our environmental and economic decline. But at this crucial moment, we won't succeed without strong and visionary leadership. And as this is a democracy, those choices are up to us. In honor of Earth Day, we leave you this week with some voices from the western part of our country. So if I recycle, I take the cans and I put them in separate bags and, you know, that's as much as I feel like I can do. Living on Earth's Ashley Ahern asked people from California to Arizona to Missouri what they're doing to care for their patch of America.
2: Well, we try and grow some of our own food and raise some of our food with uh, some chickens and we raise some beef and a nice vegetable garden.
1: At home, I use a portable heater
4: to to heat only one room and, you know, a bedroom and other than that, we
3: don't use a heater.
2: Well, it's easier to say than do. We have our air conditioning set at 80 in the summer. We have our heat set at 65 in the winter. And our kids, when they come, say, oh, it's so cold in here in the winter. And
3: I say, put on a sweater. Every day is Earth Day.
1: Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Ashley Ahern, Bobby Bascom, Eileen Belinsky, Bruce Gellerman, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Mitra Taj, and Jeff Young, with help from Jennifer Basler and Sarah Calkins. Our interns are Annie Gia and Margaret Rossano. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Learish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening.
4: PAX World, for tomorrow. On the web at paxworld.com. PRI Public Radio International.